Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. I'm your co-host, Scott Walters. And we're here today with Julia Hammer. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Julia, uh, you are in biology, and uh, luckily we got two other biologists here, and we're going to talk a little bit about your work. Uh, can you tell us, um, you know, where you are in your program and what you study? So I'm, uh, I'm a master's student. I'm in my second year and I'm almost finished. I'm trying to submit um, next month, but we'll see whether that, <laughs> whether that happens or not. And um, what I'm interested in uh, basically is how climate change affects uh, plant physiology. So photosynthesis in plants. Could you just briefly, for everybody, let us know exactly what photosynthesis is for those who might not be aware? Yeah, sure. So, so photosynthesis is this um, process that that all plants do, where they convert um, carbon dioxide into sugar, and they use that sugar to grow. Um, and to convert the carbon dioxide to sugar, they need uh, water and sunlight. That's cool. It's kind of, uh, when I think carbon dioxide, I think kind of what we breathe out so it's kind of like reverse breathing <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um okay so that's that's interesting i guess uh what what does climate change have to do with plants doing that yeah so so one of the one of the big things with climate change is the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and so the the amount of co2 in the atmosphere is is results in this this thing called the greenhouse effect and the greenhouse effect basically um, warms up the world. So in order to understand, or I guess in order to predict um, how much warming we'll get in the future, how much carbon dioxide there will, will be in the future, we need to know how plants uh, photosynthesize and how that photosynthesis will change um, as the CO2 in the atmosphere changes and as temperatures change. Okay, so how do we, what do you know so far about how CO2 might affect plants' ability to photosynthesize that if it's changing over time? Yeah, so we know, we have a pretty good understanding of how plants respond to uh, sort of short-term changes in carbon dioxide availability. Um, so like I said before, photosynthesis is this process where plants take carbon dioxide and they convert it into sugar. Um, and so we know, you know, if you increase the availability of, of carbon dioxide, plants usually increase their photosynthesis because they have more, basically kind of more food in the air to consume. Um, what we're curious about, what we don't always know, is whether that increase in photosynthesis will be sustained, I guess, over very long periods of time. So we know that atmospheric carbon dioxide is, is increasing with um, human activity, um, and we expect that to continue happening over time, but we're not so sure whether plants will continue photosynthesizing in the same way uh, in the future as they are now. Okay, okay, so um, so there's, some, you'd think, you know, carbon dioxide is, carbon dioxide is going up, so um, plants are gonna be happy. If they're gonna be eating, they're gonna have plenty to eat, but uh, they may, may be, you know, more careful with their diet, so to say, so to speak, and go, all right, I don't know, uh, I don't know if I'm gonna necessarily eat all the carbon dioxide that is going to be available uh, if it's increasing around. Um, uh, what other factors might a plant take into account to decide whether to uh, have a CO2 or carbon dioxide meal or not? 
Yeah, so that's that's a really, really good question. Um, so what we think is that over time, you know, you give plants all of this carbon dioxide, there's only so much sugar that they need um, before other things start to limit their growth, I guess. So one of the big things is nutrient availability. They need nutrients to grow as well. Um, another thing is water availability. So without water, they sort of can't expand their cells and they can't grow. Yeah, those are the, those are the two big ones. And then of course there's, um, like I said before, there's temperature. If the temperature is too high or too low, then plants don't photosynthesize as well either. Okay, so how would you say that temperature compared to CO2 really affects the plants? Like as CO2 goes up, you're saying that they're getting better at photosynthesizing to a certain degree, but with heat, does it get better or does it get worse with the increasing heat or is it more complicated than that? Um, it's a little complicated. Uh, it, it kind of depends on where the plant is to start, I guess. So if, if your plant is already at a very high temperature and you increase the temperature further, it's usually bad news. <laughs> Things inside the plant start to break down. Yeah, basically you can, you can, the plant will die if it gets really hot. Um, but if you have a plant that's starting off in a really cold environment and you increase the temperature and you increase the average temperature over time, sometimes those plants can end up doing better. That's, that's quite interesting that plants are going to differ in that way, you know, depending on what their temperature is currently. Um, I guess, does that mean it, it depends on uh, not only where they are, but types of plants? Because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, don't know too much about plants, but I'm assuming there's certain plants that kind of grow in those basal temperatures that differ because that's kind of what they prefer. So like if I just go to the Arctic and find a plant, there are any plants there <laughs> and I go to like, I don't know, Hawaii and find another plant, <laughs> are, do those plants differ? Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. So, and there are plants in the Arctic. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the plants that I look at specifically are boreal trees. The sort of general consensus is that um, global warming uh, as a result of climate change will be a good thing for boreal trees because they're in those Northern latitude regions that um that are cold for a lot of the year okay so you're saying it's going to be good just because if it gets too hot it reduces photosynthesis but you're saying boreal trees are how do the boreal trees differ from from the other plants that you were mentioning like other type of trees that you might see other places Ah, uh, yeah so <laughs> this is a tricky question to answer so i i guess photosynthesis in these different trees is it's kind of adapted to an extent to the, the climate of their origin, I, I suppose. So we might expect boreal trees because they've adapted to this sort of mostly cool environment to, um, to do best at that environment in that environment and maybe do a little bit better with a little bit of warming. But then if you compare that to a tropical tree, for instance, that's adapted, and I think Ariel was sort of saying this earlier about changes, variability in environment, your tropical trees or your tropical plants are kind of adapted to uh, consistent warm temperatures. And so with global warming, we have an increase, let's say in, in global uh, temperature or global average temperature. That might be really bad news for those tropical trees that are used to seeing only one temperature, but possibly good news for trees that are, that are in the north where it's, it's cooler because of these kind of adaptations they have uh, in their photosynthesis to their climate of origin. I mean, it seems it seems like it's uh, it's always going to be a complicated story because you can't you know you're you're actually talking about climate, you're talking about the whole world, right? It's, it's a lot of factors to account for. We're talking, we're we're taking you all the way across 
world and asking you questions about everything around the world. So it's kind of a <laughs> kind of a difficult um, field to, to 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 grasp entirely. Um, so maybe can you speak to in ter- in terms of like um, the impact over the whole world, um, the different types of trees that might have an impact. I mean, I imagine trees are big, so maybe they 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 eat more CO two than maybe like grass or like flowers that are maybe smaller, but but maybe there's more of them. So in terms of boreal trees that you're interested in specifically, what's their impact kind of um, globally as a, as, a, as a particular type of tree or plant? Um, this is a good question. So boreal trees or boreal forests, I suppose, are really, really big forest. They're, I think they account for around 30% of forested area, I believe. Um, and they're all around these sort of northern, northern latitude regions. So I, I guess... In general, those trees compared to other types of plants are slow growing, but they do end up storing a lot of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere long-term because um, the area is covered in this, um, this sort of soil structure called peat, which doesn't uh, decompose very quickly because it's pretty cold up there and, and very um, boggy, I suppose, a waterlogged. You don't get a lot of decomposition. So the trees up there will mostly needle-leafed trees, so um, spruces, will will grow and then they'll drop their needles uh, and then those needles will just sit on the forest floor and they won't decompose and they'll form this peat. And, and that peat can, you know, contains all of that organic material, all that carbon that the trees have put into to their needles and it will stay there for a very, very long time and not, not decompose. And what I mean by not decompose is that that carbon isn't, isn't respired back into the atmosphere by microbes in the soil. So in that sense, boreal trees uh, or the boreal biome, I guess, is important for carbon storage in the long term. But in general, it's a it's a very you know broad forest. Like it's very it covers a lot of area. Um, it's fairly long lived. And I think the other reason that I'm interested in it is it's because it's in those northern latitude regions, we also know from climate models that those areas are warming at a faster rate than many other areas of the world. So for that reason, they're pretty vulnerable to, to climate change in that sense. So we, we want a, a good idea of how they're going to, to respond in the future. That's really cool. So it's definitely a complex question you're getting at and trying to answer. So you're interested in boiled trees and how CO2 is gonna affect them in a warming world. So. Can you describe for us sort of how you're getting towards that? Like, how are you trying to answer these questions? What is your specific way of going about doing that? Yeah, so so we kind of, so I was saying before, we kind of have this, this idea of how photosynthesis in plants responds to, to increases in carbon dioxide availability. And we kind of know how photosynthesis responds to temperature as well. Um, but the combination of those two things is something we don't know as much about. And to kind of answer that question, uh, in addition to CO2 by itself and, and temperature by itself, uh, what I did was grew boreal seedlings um, in, in a controlled environment. And I, I grew them under either current CO2 levels or high CO2 levels and either uh, kind of current temperatures, um, a current temperature regime with a bit of warming, so some moderate warming that we might expect under um, a moderate climate future scenario um, and also at a more extreme um, warming level. So uh, basically I, I kind of have these glass houses and I grew these seedlings with either low CO2 or high CO2 and kind of 
low temperatures or high temperatures and then measured their photosynthesis. Cool. How, how, do you, uh, how do you measure the photosynthesis of a plant? Um, that's a good question. So we, we use these instruments that are called portable photosynthesis uh, instruments, and they have in them, you know, this is a bunch of fancy words, they have these things called infrared gas analyzers. And basically you take a little, you have a chamber and you put a leaf inside the chamber, you measure the amount of CO2 in the air going into the chamber, and then it mixes around with the leaf, the leaf photosynthesizes, and then you measure the amount of CO2 in the air that comes out of the chamber. And then the difference in carbon dioxide is, is basically your photosynthesis. Uh, well, that's, <laughs> that's really cool. So with these seedlings that you're growing up, I get that they're at different temperatures, different CO2 levels. Um, mm -hmm. Are they all set at a given level or at any point are you also or are you varying like these greenhouses over time so you see how this things are changing with the seedlings? So I only grew my seedlings for one growing season um, and since they're in the greenhouses we get sort of natural light variation day to day. Uh, the temperature treatment is a little interesting because we used we took the temperature of that day for the previous five years so that day of the year for the previous five years and we took the average um, over the, the five years. And then that was our current temperature treatment. And then we add for moderate warming, just a baseline like plus four degrees on top of that. And then for the extreme warming, it's plus eight on top of that. So it kind of varies by day according to what we might expect generally for that day of the year, plus some warming in the warming treatments. Oh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So you're saying that you have um, two different sets, though, of, of additional temperature that are predicted that might come about. You said four four degrees yes. higher, eight degrees higher, depending on how bad climate yeah. change gets. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, forgive me. I might ask another uh, like uh, animal bias <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, working with animals myself, I'm thinking now just about the methods you're employing here. Um, is there variation of like the way plants choose to photosynthesize um, across the day? Like, uh, I mean, I'm assuming they can't really do too much at night when there's no light, but like maybe they, they just like eat as much as they can when they can in the morning and then maybe less later because like they're full <laughs> or something. Um, and then, and then also, um, you said you use seedlings and I'm, and I'm picturing like forests, like massive big trees. So like, what about the age of the plant? Um, so, so aging and uh, time of day, are those, uh, are those factors that are important for photosynthesis in plants? I guess I should start at the beginning with, with photosynthesis. So, so photosynthesis is, is biochemical, right? It happens inside the leaf, inside the cells. But for CO2 to get inside the plant, it has to go through these pores on the underside of the leaves, and these are called stomata. And stomata can open and close dynamically, so the plants can, can change how open these holes are in their leaves, uh, depending on changes in the environment. <clears throat> and one of the things that, that controls or that determines, or that plants respond <laughs> to <laughs> in terms of their stomatal opening and closing is temperature and also water availability. Because when these stomata are open, you have water lost as well as carbon dioxide taken in. So we know that in the afternoon when it gets kind of warmer, plants will tend to close their stomata to conserve water because um, water evaporates when it's warm. 
so you get a lot of water loss at that time of day. But because those stomata are closing, you don't get as much carbon dioxide coming in and then photosynthesis dips a little bit. To answer your second question about seedlings, so the age of the tree, um, this, is, this is such a good question. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because these trees, like I said, they're really long lived. And some of the species I'm working with can live up to like 150 to 200 years. So these changes in climate, they're going to be seeing them, you know, over this really long time scale. Um, and working with seedlings, you know, doesn't necessarily tell us anything about their, their long-term or mature kind of responses. At the same time, it's a bit difficult to measure mature trees because they're so big, um, especially in a controlled way. Um, yeah, so, so we have these field sites. They're called free air CO2 enrichment sites. Um, basically, people build these scaffolds around mature forests or plots of mature forests, and the scaffolds blow CO2 onto the trees. Um, you can also have heating coils to do a heating or warming treatment too. Um, but the drawback of doing that is that these trees are already mature, so they've grown up under current environmental conditions, and then we're suddenly shocking them with this you know, high CO2, high temperature treatment. So it's kind of, you need both the mature tree well, it's two ways of, of measuring things. N neither of them are perfect, you know, to get a really accurate idea of how these trees respond over their lifespans, you need to be doing an experiment for like 100, 150 years, right? Um, but from what I can tell, or from what I've read, <laughs> um, mature trees tend not to change their photosynthesis as much as seedlings do. And my guess is that um, seedlings are in a sort of rapid growth stage of their life so they really do you know trying to photosynthesize as much as possible so if you give them more co2 i think they're more likely to just take it and grow whereas a mature tree might be more conservative so if warming has some outsized impact on the seedlings of tomorrow <laughs> um mm -hmm. then uh and let's say it was a negative impact well that might have like a generational effect later like i'm thinking i'm imagining like there was a big like the baby boomer generation like had long-term effects because it was such a big generation of, of humans. And there maybe is going to be like a really big generation of, of boreal trees because of so much CO2 for some reason <laughs> uh, in that one period of time. Is that, is that some way that you like kind of interpret your seedling data with your mature tree understanding? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good point. The, the process of, of kind of recruiting new seedlings is, is a little bit complex because it has to do with competition and other sort of ecological forces. Um, but yeah, that's, that's another way of interpreting it. Certainly a lot of uh, people are working on, on rain shifts for plants. So some, some people think, or, or some modelers predict that the boreal forest is sort of moving northward as it gets warmer. So the, uh, the environment becomes more habitable as you, as you, get further north as we get warmer um so it, it's you know it's a good point that if, if seedlings don't do well under warming or under high co2 for instance then maybe we won't see as much of a shift uh, northward or we might see different plants succeeding in some areas and not succeeding in other areas um yeah so that is that's one way of interpreting it yeah and that's certainly something i'll be discussing <laughs> in my thesis so I'm curious if if photosynthesis eventually is overwhelmed or 
is reduced because of everything you're talking about, then could would the growth of the trees potentially be impacted? Would they maybe be stunted or smaller? Could it affect like the structure of the forest we see out there? Ooh, this is a good question. I think short answer is yes. <laughs> At least for warming, we know that for, for plants that are grown under these extreme temperatures, so in my extreme warming treatment, they are smaller than the ones that are grown under more moderate warming or, um, or no warming. Um, but combined with high carbon dioxide, you know, it, because carbon dioxide generally stimulates photosynthesis, it could be that these two forces together kind of cancel out that effect and we'll see similar growth um, over time. So this is, this is, so you kind of hit a question that I'm trying to ask or trying to answer with my project too. So, so when you're looking at these trees in your project, that's really cool. So it might, I, I imagine that could maybe differ based on species. So you talked about boreal trees, but probably can't go into all the species, but I'm just curious, how many species are, are you looking at when you're doing these projects? So I'm, I'm looking at five species and, and actually boreal forests aren't, aren't very biodiverse in terms of trees, at least. So there's the, the five species I'm looking at, they're um, black spruce, white spruce, jack pine, um, tamarack and paper birch or white birch. So these five species account for around 60% of the trees in uh, the North American boreal, I should say. Those five species, they kind of fall into two, um, what we call plant functional types. Um, and, and plant functional types are just a, a way of categorizing different species of plant into broad groups that have similar biology. So the three, three of the species I mentioned, the um, the white spruce, the black spruce, and the jack pine are all evergreen needle-leafed trees. So they have needles um, and they keep those needles for, for you know, one, two years before dropping them. Um, whereas the tamarack and the paper birch are both deciduous. So they drop their leaves um, in the fall. Uh, and we know that deciduous trees, um, especially the paper birch, they tend to be faster growing than the evergreens. And we think, or, or based on my results at least, it seems that they're much more responsive to these to these changes in climate than the other species are. But I'm still kind of working out the nuts and bolts and trying to figure out why that is. But my guess at the moment would be that because those um, two deciduous species are, are fast growing, they tend to take advantage of good conditions and then just like skyrocket off and just grow as much as they can. Whereas the other species, they're more conservative, they're more adapted to an environment that's less habitable, I suppose. You know, the boreal environment's pretty cold. It's also fairly nutrient poor. So they are more likely to not take advantage of the good conditions. And so what we might see, you know, moving forward is a transition from a boreal forest that's mostly, for example, these needle evergreens to a forest that's more and more deciduous species. Yes, it's a little bit more complicated than that, <laughs> but that could be the case. So I was thinking about all these awesome seedlings that you grew in these different greenhouses. So are these, are these greenhouses here? Are they here on Western? Uh, are they part of your lab or what kind of facilities do we have? Yeah, so my, my greenhouses are these really neat sort of rooftop greenhouses and they're in this facility called the Biotron and um, Biotron is, is attached to our, our biology department but it it also has things like um, uh, small growth chambers for plants um, it has some you know 
some imaging facilities as well. Um, but yeah, my, I mean, I'm biased, but I think the glass houses on the roof that have this kind of uh, climate controlled capability um, are really, really awesome. <laughs> but yes, here at Weston in, a, in the Biotron. That's awesome. You know, it's cool that you uh, managed to get here to Western and uh, utilize uh, this amazing facility. <laughs> also a little bit biased. I also work in the bathroom, <laughs> but <laughs> a lower floors with uh, uh, less uh, sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess lastly, I'd just like to ask people, um, you know, what brought you into this world of, <laughs> of research that, you know, I think those who have not done any research are, kind of like it's a weird world like you talk to people who have their nine to five jobs it's like what do you do I don't know so what brought you to this type of research field um yeah so so when I was an undergrad uh, you know I, I I was taking biology I've, I've always liked science but um I was taking a biology class called I think it was called diversity of life or something like that and I had a professor that was so excited and so passionate about plants and his kind of selling point about plants because you know most people think they're not that exciting because they don't move but to me that's sort of that's sort of the coolest part about plants is that they because they can't move they have to develop all these ways of dealing with changes in the environment um you know like i was saying carbon dioxide and temperature but also water availability light level um herbivory is a big one um competition these kinds of things means that they have these really interesting you know, physiological mechanisms and strategies for, for dealing with stress. And to me, I was like, wow, that's incredible. Also field work with plants is excellent because you know, you don't, they don't move. They're just there. <laughs> you can just measure them. So yeah, that's kind of, kind of how I ended up being interested in plants. And then, um, you know, we, we were talking about the biotron. That was kind of the biggest reason I came to Weston because um, I'm from Australia, I came to Weston because we have this really neat facility for doing these, these kind of climate controlled environment studies. Um, yeah, so that's why I'm here. That's awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for telling us about your work and, you know, glad to have you here at Western utilizing the facilities. Um, you know, <laughs> humans, unlike plants, we move all over the place. So to keep track of us and what we're up to, it's a bit uh, ornery. Uh, but luckily, we often post things on the internet uh, where we're at and what we're doing. If somebody wanted to find you and find out what you're up to, uh, where could they go on, on the internet? So uh, I have a Twitter. It's uh, at Jewel Facts. Um, so you can you can see what I'm up to research-wise there. Fantastic. We'll put that uh, in the description. Thanks for coming on, Julia. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Um, with that, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host was Scott Walters. We've been speaking with Julia Hammer, and this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved in the show, get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at GradCast Radio. Also, you can listen to us on the radio, Radio Western 94.9 FM. And all our episodes are archived on our website, gradcast.ca. You can find all our episodes on any podcast app, basically. Uh, Podbean, iTunes, and people like Spotify nowadays. We're on there, too. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.